morning, everybody. Hosea. Hosea. We're starting a short series in June in some of what are referred to as the minor prophets. Of course, they are important to look at. They're part of the Word of God, but they're part of the clean pages in our Bible because they don't get looked at very often. And it's time that we did have a, at least an, an idea of what these particular parts of the Bible are about. We don't know them that well. There are, in fact, 14 chapters down in the book of Hosea. <laughs> and uh, we all, get, all need to get to know them. And um, it's, uh, what we're going to do is give an overview, or at least a main theme, of some of the minor prophets as we look at them in um, this month. So today it's Hosea. They're called the minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because they are small books and small uh, parts of, of the scripture. Um, and Hosea is the first of these, the ones before Daniel and Jeremiah and uh, Isaiah, sometimes referred to as the major prophets because they are the large ones. The name Hosea is the same name as Joshua or Joseph. Hosea and Joseph are sounding similar and in fact they come from the same root um, and it means salvation. That's all I'm going to say about the background. A little bit is given to you and we've just had it in our reading but I want to get on to the actual theme of Hosea and what it's all about. They said it was indestructible. It was one-sixth of a mile long. It had seven, 16 transverse bulkheads it was double hull, and they said about it that if the enemy were to attack it with torpedoes, it would take at least three torpedoes hitting different parts of the ship at the same time to sink it. Yet on the night of the 14th of April, 1912, uh, on its maiden voyage, the Titanic sank with the loss of 1,500 17 lives. The greatest peacetime maritime disaster. Trouble was, it could so easily have been avoided. Hours earlier, radio operators had sent radio messages to the Titanic warning of dangerous icebergs in the area, but they were ignored. There was a sense of euphoria on the bridge of Titanic. The ship was so big that when it hit the iceberg, even the impact of hitting that iceberg, which eventually sank it, the impact was hardly noticed on the ship at all. It was so big. It was a middle pond calm day, and uh, people thought everything is fine. But it was fatally flawed, and before long, it was going to go down. Nobody knew it when it first hit the iceberg. Survivors spoke of the band playing on, people dancing in the ballroom. On the deck, a snowball fight developed with snow that had come off the iceberg that they just hit and landed on the deck and they had fun with a snowball fight on deck. The folly of human complacency. But this was a lesson that Israel needed to learn. They were complacent. They thought everything was fine. It was the middle of the 8th 
century BC, in 700 BC. The kingdom of Israel before that had been divided into two. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was the kingdom of, was called the kingdom of Judah. And it was under, reigned, under the uh, reign of Uzziah. And the northern kingdom was under the reign of Jeroboam II. They were looking at the northern kingdom, but that's the one that Hosea is concerned with. It was a time of prosperity, politically and economically. Jeroboam had expanded the borders of Israel so much that uh, it was people were feeling really good, and not only had he expanded, but he had secured the borders as well. Never since Solomon, who was 250 odd years before, Hosea, was there so much affluence and peace. Yet like the Titanic, it was a false sense of security. Their iceberg was Assyria slumbering up north, the superpower of the day, waiting for a time when it will cause untold harm to the nation of Israel, slumbering quietly. Soon it was going to awaken, and the strike that would come from Assyria was going to be so vicious and so, so uh, bad that Israel, the northern kingdom, would never recover from it, and the people would never return to Israel again. But the problem was that the disaster they were facing was avoidable. There would be many warnings, people like Amos and Hosea, that we are thinking about. They were contemporaries of each other. At least they overlapped each other. And uh, they were warning about things. But that sea was so calm, the music was so entrancing, the uh, entertainment was so enjoyable, their affluence was so great, they thought everything was fine. And when warnings came from these prophets, they were totally ignored as if it doesn't matter. The people thought when Amos came along, Amos spoke of God being a judge. They thought that's so old-fashioned to think of God as being like a judge. And when Hosea came along and spoke about God being like a wounded or a hurt um, uh, um, spouse, they thought that's just old-time religion, all so unfashionable. Those prophets spoke in the name of Jehovah, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And the people thought, that's so old-fashioned, all that language. All that view of God and what God is like, it's so passe. We don't want any of that. What we want is something that's good for the 8th century BC. We didn't actually say that. You can't have it. But you know what I'm that, We want something that's up-to-date that we can fit in with much better. Um, I remember that little saying that Kent's often repeated from Bishop Ing 120 years ago when he said, whoever marries the spirit of this age will find himself a widower in the next. Very wise words in many ways. But that's what they thought. They said, your view of God is so old, so unattractive. The avant-garde religion of the day is male worship. That's much more interesting. Sexual liberty and sexual license included. And that's much, much better. You shall not commit adultery. 
That's so uh, Joseph, all that stuff went out with Elijah hundred years ago. Don't want any of that stuff anymore. We want something that will suit us in this modern age. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Does to me. It's so familiar in our culture today. And uh, we find it everywhere. And I have to say that even within the church of Jesus Christ, I'm concerned. Uh, you look at most Christian magazines, is the, the um, Western Christian magazines and the uh, one printed in English, and particularly those with youth in mind. And you flick through the magazines and the whole, it seems that many of them, the whole purpose is to try and see how like the world we can get. So that we want this type of music, and we want that type of artwork, and we want that type of fashion, and so on, so that we are like everybody else. And we adopt the spirit of the age, so that we fit in, whether it's our entertainment, or our ethics, or whatever it is. So we become indistinguishable from those who live around, who have no thought of God at all. So the values we adopt and live by become merged with today's culture. That's what they were talking Eighth century BC. Our heroes today become our entertainers, and those who can attract a crowd and please their listeners or please their followers. I don't need to go on. You don't need to continue to You see it the same way. And when we have children of our own, sometimes we're afraid to put our foot down and say, "You will do this," or on the other hand, "You won't go there." We're afraid to do that in case we upset our children and we lose our children and we lose... We want to be liked. We don't like being disliked, especially by our children. And we don't realise that unless we do those things, we shall lose them anyway. But that's another subject. Amos and his contemporaries spoke to the people about the same thing, but in a completely different way. Amos spoke about the situation in which they found themselves, with God as judge, who was angry at how they were living. But Hosea, when he spoke to people, he spoke of God as a jilted lover who was being rejected and caused pain. So that's the background. Hosea, and we're, we're going to refer mainly to chapters 1 to 3, because that's the theme of Hosea. The rest of the chapters, as Darren rightly pointed out, or hinted out, we've only got time to do with everything in 14 chapters, but the first three chapters are the story, the narrative, and the rest of the book is sort of based, a prophecy based upon the theme of that narrative. So we'll be focusing on the actual narrative itself. The book of Hosea is not terribly easy to understand or to follow because it's not chronological all the way through. You know, you jump about. Now we in the West find that difficult because our way of thinking is, which we inherited from Plato and the Greeks, you know, we have a, a point here which leads to the next one, which leads to the next one. We have what we refer to as a linear way of thinking. All things in a line. One thing leads to the next thing, it leads to the next thing. And that's why we like things to be in chronological order, because you can see how they flow from one another. But in most parts of the world, or I should say many parts of the world, and certainly in Bible days and in Jesus' day, people didn't think like that. They thought of a truth here, and a truth there, and another truth here, and another truth over there. And there was a sort of collection of truths. So it didn't have to be understood in chronological terms, in chronological order. 
So when you get to chapter 4 to 14 especially, if you're going to look at it a bit more later, you'll find there are different things and it's quite difficult to fit them in any order as to actually where they come in sequence. But that isn't, doesn't matter. The message flows through it all. And even in the narrative part, there are some parts that don't flow quite in chronological order. But the story starts in verse 2 of chapter 1. When God told Hosea, go and find yourself a wife. Now, no doubt he was very pleased about that. He was a bachelor, didn't want to spend his life as a bachelor, so he decided that he would go and find a wife. And God outlined him uh, that he'd got somebody in mind, and the person he got in mind was Gomer, daughter of Diblai. Oh, by the way, when God said to him, go and marry Gomer, daughter of Diblai. By the way, I want to tell you, Hosea, she's a prostitute. Can you imagine what he felt like? He was a prophet of God. And now God says, go and marry him. She's a prostitute. She's a harlot. Not that she was a harlot and had been converted, or that she had a moral slip-up at some time. It's that she was a practicing prostitute. It was her lifestyle. Most Christians would never dream of doing such a thing. Why? Well, for, for a start, I mean, you would know that living, sleeping around like that, there's danger of all sorts of diseases, sexually transmitted diseases and so on. You wouldn't want that. And secondly, there was the enduring shame of it all. Can you imagine what it was like for Hosea and a wife who everybody knew she was a practicing a prostitute? How could he be a prophet of God with a wife like that? And then at a personal level, there was a terrible pain at the unfaithfulness of his wife. Most Christians, well, we don't think of ourselves in those terms at all. But what God was doing was trying to tell Hosea, this is how I feel about Israel. And I want you to use your life and your married life as an illustration to Israel at the way I feel about these things. Augustine, at the beginning of his uh, confessions, says this, Our God has made us for, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. We are made for God. And if we are made for God, and then we sort of disappear and go off to somebody else, and we go off, on other pathways of time. Imagine how God must feel. That's the picture that's here. So God said to, to Hosea, go and find yourself a wife. And I picked one out. Her name's Goma. She's a harlot. And um, I want you to know, Hosea, what it's like to be married to unfaithfulness. By the way, in verse 2, where it says, take, yourself, uh, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. That's polite English. In the original language, it's crude language. He's talking about a prostitute, a harlot, a, a whore that he's going, to, he's going to marry. That's how it's expressed. And it's painful language as well as painful in its meaning. Can you imagine a pastor of a ch church today who does something like that? I mean, how would the church react? What would the church feel? I mean, if one of our elders said he's getting married, or oh, I'm getting married to the town prostitute, one that everybody knows is the town prostitute, I mean, it, it would make it very difficult, wouldn't it? In any relation. But that's what he was called to do. It's intended to shock. 
It was Hosea's obedient response to this divine command that he did it precisely as God said. And he took her precisely because she was Not just that she happened to be, but because she was. What God was saying is, I want you to be in an enacted sermon. Israel is guilty of the vilest unfaithfulness, adultery. So much so because the worship, not just because the worship of God included sexual immorality as part of its practices, but because the people had forsaken God whom they belonged to. This was spiritual adultery. They were breaking their vows, they were flirting with somebody else to fail. Now the New Testament speaks of uh, our relationships as Christians with Jesus and the church being related to Jesus as a married man, a man and wife. That's how the Bible describes it. And it speaks of Jesus coming to purchase the church for himself. Which means that when we apostatize, when we backslide, when we put other things at the center of our life, when we allow other things to divert us from that calling of being his bride, God doesn't just feel annoyed. He doesn't just feel a bit upset. He feels wounded. He feels broken-hearted and he weeps. He's anguished by sin. His first reaction is to weep when the act is like that. That's like that. He's anguished now. And that, in that song about we've dug for ourselves systems that cannot hold them, to quote um, Jeremiah. And when we go and drink at systems that don't hold water, is God who God is broken hearted sin slaps God in the face and says I don't care and God deep deep God is not a schoolmaster with a clipboard standing there ticking off different points he is a lover who has been guilty his heart is when you sin, don't first think of God as being cross or angry or annoyed. But think of his tears. Think wounds. Think broken heart. He weeps over our sin. Let me say something here. I think I've lived long enough to realize that in a group of this size, there may well be people who are deeply hurt themselves because of the unfaithfulness of a spouse or someone close to you. <coughs> Unhappy marriage, infidelity, whether in act, single act, or in a process that goes on and on. And you sometimes wonder if God really understands. The answer is yes, he does. He certainly does. More than you or I ever were. Or more than you are, I will ever know about it. But it's not long before the pain gives way to anger. And God does express anger. It's shown here in what follows. So verse 3 says that he then had a daughter. She conceived, Gomer conceived, a uh, son rather, uh, uh, conceived and bore him a son. He had a boy. And God said, I want you to call him Jezreel. 
Now, for us in the West, here in this church, the word Jezreel might be just an echo of something that goes on in the Bible somewhere. We're not quite sure and so on. We don't uh, understand the import of that particular word. But for the children of Israel, as soon as the word Jezreel was mentioned, that would have an impact upon them. It would really mean something. For Jezreel was a place of bloodshed. You can read about it in 2 Kings, but don't read it now. 2 Kings chapter 10, actually. Jehu, against God's orders, had slaughtered the entire royal household and thousands of others, uh, hundreds of hundreds years before, and, and thousands of others, and it exterminated these people. And it led to continued violence that went down generation after generation. In fact, out of the next six kings, five of them were assassinated. And it sprung from Jezreel. And God says, I'm really angry. The people, when Jezreel took place, the slaughter of Jezreel, the people were scattered everywhere. And that's what the name means, scattered. God says, I've not forgotten. Israel will be scattered again. Call your, your, call your son Jezreel. I mean, it's like somebody today calling their son Auschwitz. You can imagine. Or Buchenwald. Or Belsen. It's exactly the same impact. Call your son. Somebody came out and have a new baby. Got some new babies here. You know, if you come and said, my new baby is called Auschwitz. It would be terrible. But every time Hosea called his son out in the street, he preached the message to the people. And that's what God told him to do. Reckoning is coming. And in verse 5 he says, I'm going to break Israel. But, in other words, I'll break her military might. Uh, because Israel still thinks that might is right. Then, child number two came along. That's in verse 6. Daniel conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhama. And that means not love, not pity. When Hosea picked up this little baby, maybe for the first time, maybe in his heart, he knew something was not quite right, and he thought, this isn't really my child. Not quite sure. His heart didn't go out. There was no love and pity that there should have been for this little child. And God told him, call her this child, Lo Raham, his little daughter had. And he gave her that name. I mean, surely it's cruel, 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 not love. What she's name is. Surely it's psychologically damaging, you see. But God was speaking precisely how God felt about Israel and what they were doing. The Jews, the southern kingdom, yes, but surely in Israel, gone too far. And now he says, look, you're not right because of the way you've been going off with other people, particularly by Paul Hello Rohana. I'll show no love to Israel because of what she said. Then the third child came on. That's verse 9. Verse 9, call him, Lo am I, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Perhaps uh, he thought when he had the second child, Lo Rahama, is this really my child? But by the time Lo am I comes along, it seems to be perfectly obvious, this isn't my child. He's a prostitute. Who, who knows whose child it really is? And he realized it was not his child. And he gave her the name Lo am I, which means not my people. Not mine. Not my child at all. See, right back at the beginning, God said to the children of Israel, I shall be their God, 
and they will be my people. That's what the covenant is about. That's what the swearing of allegiance is about. They will be my children. And my, uh, I will be their God and they will be my children. It's actually a reflection of what takes place in a marriage service when promises are made. I will be her husband. I will be her, 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 her wife, his husband. I will be her, his wife. I will be her husband. You know, when the promises are made in the marriage service, that has taken there. But now I've got to repudiate. This is, this is not another kiss now. This now is grounds for divorce. Because she's gone off with her. And in his anger, God said, I won't have this woman anymore. She can go. Add it up with her. Get her out of the house. It's a very powerful warning. Now it's very dangerous for us to toy with God's effect. To say, uh, it's Heinrich Heine, who coined the phrase, God will forgive me, that's his job. The priest said to him, as he was dying on his deathbed, what about your sins? And he said, God will forgive me, that's his job. We may not be so brash, but we sometimes think that. Well, I can there's no problem forgive God. We cannot talk with God's affection. We can't presume on God's grace. So that's the story of Hosea. And is that it? Not quite. Not quite. It's very, very sad. Unfaithful Israel, illustrated by unfaithful Gomer. God's reaction, Jezreel, scattering. Though I'm not loved, though I'm not my people. That's it. But it's not quite all. Get to verse 10. Verse 10 starts in the NIV with the word yet, yet. And the, t- the picture begins to change. Yeah. Those, well, let me read it. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the she- seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. What God is saying? Yes, I have rejected my people because of what they have done, what, how they've gone off with other gods, other people. But that's not the end. There will come a time when they will be called my people again. You know, when an unfaithful wife becomes a prostitute, all the talk is of divorce, separation, banishment, rejection. Lawyers for the divorce are briefed and retained. Divorce papers are drawn up. Divorce is going to take place. But there is a decree nicer that takes place. That's the preliminary part of divorce. And those papers are registered and the hearing takes place. But between decree nicer and decree absolute, there's a space. The law demands it. It has to be at least six weeks and one day. But usually it gets on to six months between the two. There's a gap. And it has a place and it has a purpose. Because the divorce doesn't take place until the decree absolute. The second phase of it. 
Between the two, there's a, what we sometimes might refer to as a calling off period, when people can really think about what they're doing, when they can see the step that they're taking and the awful consequences of the step that they are taking. There's that step in between, there's that gap in between. So in the face of constant and persistent unfaithfulness, all the talkers of divorce, separation takes place, while, and then things begin to cause a sort of that. And for Hosea, that period is crucial. The people were being rejected. And now God speaks to Hosea and says, Hosea, this isn't the end. I want you to do something. For God can never abandon the covenant that he actually has made. From cover to cover in the Bible, it speaks of God's faithfulness and his covenant love in the face of terrible provocation and sin. So much so that God constantly is being spoken to by the people of God and they say things like this, for the sake of your great name, do not abandon And God cannot abandon them because there is this covenant relationship with the people of God. And in the case of Goma and Hosea, there was something that Goma had forgotten and something that she didn't know. The thing that Goma had forgotten was this. She had forgotten that all through the agony that Hosea was going through with his wife, he had not stopped loving her. She had forgotten. He was being faithful and he loved her. Yes, at a rational level, as he thought about it, action had to be taken, something had to be done, but it was always through tears, because he loved her. That was something she forgot. Didn't think about it at all. But there was something also that she didn't know. When she went, moved out, and she went off with one of her lovers, she moved in with him, and uh, he wasn't... He was a very worthless fellow. Hosea kept track of her to find out what was going on. And he found out that the lover that she'd moved in with didn't have very much, wasn't very wealthy, or perhaps he'd squandered all his money and he's unfaithful. But they didn't have much. And he wanted to make sure that Gomer was looked after and so perhaps it was a secret meeting or perhaps it was done anonymously. We don't know. But he sent a check. He sent money so that she would have enough and that she could be looked after. And her mother bought food and clothes. That's what he said. She didn't know that. She talked about it as if it was her lover who had provided everything. What she didn't know was actually Hosea who was providing all through that time. She thought, why should I go back to Hosea? My lover feeds me, he dresses me, I'm okay. But what she didn't know is that it was actually Hosea. She didn't know that. She had no right to expect anything. But he continued her to love her through the tears. And he gave her all she needed. And you can read about that in chapter 2, verse 5. She says, she says, I will go after my other lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and linen, my oil and my drink. They're the ones who give me everything. But look down at verse 8. 
she's not Hosea says I, she's not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her, on her the silver and the gold, which they used to bear. Do you know that? The story goes on. There came a time when eventually her lover ran out of money completely, and for some reason or other, perhaps because he needed a bit of money, he decided to sell her into, this, into slavery. Took her down to the slave market, put her up for sale. Slave market for those days were wretched, wretched places. And um, up she would come. Her number would be called, and up she'd come. She'd be stripped naked in front of everybody. The auctioneer of her. The person in charge of the sale would probably poke her with a stick to make her dance around a bit to show that she was fit and strong. And then the bidding would start and somebody would bid three pieces of silver. And Hosea had gone to the market and had seen his wife come up for sale. And he bid five. And somebody said eight pieces of silver. And he said ten. And somebody said, I'll give twelve. And Hosea said, I'll give 15. Oh, and a bushel of barley. I'll throw that in too. There were no further bids. And the auctioneer said, going, going, gone. The hammer went down. Hosea had brought his life back. That's what he said in the story here. Verse one of chapter three, the Lord said to me, go and show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another and is adulterous. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the secret place of the sacred raven cave. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a home and a lecket of barley. I told her, you ought to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. I live it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. But is that it? Is that it? Is that the end of the story? Well, of course, Hosea didn't want her to live as she had, and she told her that she mustn't, and discipline must take place, and she must be corrected, and, set, and, and so on, and punishment that must take place. In fact, if you read in chapter 2, verse 13, I thought that it was not all chronological. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bells and she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But she forgot me for God. He's speaking of Israel as the, the picture of going out from me. But then look at verse 14 of chapter 1. We're going to finish with Therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly there I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days that she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and will no longer call me my master. I will remove, remove the names of the bells from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the wild beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move on the ground, bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from the land, so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, 
and you will acknowledge the Lord. And that day I will respond, declared the Lord. I will respond to the sky and I will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond with a new wine and oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land and show my love to the one I called not my loved one. And will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. What a wonderful, wonderful day. No, it wasn't the end. God said, I am drawing Hosea, take her out of the Tell her the honey. Speak to her. Whisper in her ear. Tell her what you love her. Bring her back. This is exactly what God does. Where sin abounds, grace does much more. But is this just a historical document that we looked at and thought, well, an interesting story? Or is there any personal application? Let's just finish with this assembly. I could be speaking to somebody, even here, who in your heart of hearts, you've been spitting in the face of God. Probably is putting it strongly, but from what we've been thinking about, that's what it's like. Rebellion, backsliding, departing. You may be in your heart of hearts saying, I just can't resist that temptation. Or maybe it's human decency. What everybody thinks is great becomes more bad. Might be possession, might be a career, it might be study, it might be anything, it might be sport. And leading you away from your commitment to one and not. Or it may be just that your relationship with God is broken simply by that neglect. I can tell you that if that's the case, you feel like a fish out of water, you feel in your heart. Because when we know him, and we step off the path and engulf us on it, we know But I want to tell you that God is a faithful God. He doesn't want to humiliate you, to crush you, and to damn you. He wants to draw you in love. Be encouraged. He will have his way. You need a second honeymoon. Really. A wounded lover, yes. An angry lover, yes. But he's a faithful lover. Because he loves us with undying love. And it's a wonderful thing to remind ourselves that what God has done in Jesus is a covenant love. Thank you.